Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to the Beyond 50 radio program. I'm Daniel Davis. Today, we're going to have a wonderful exploration about the idea of thought. After all, many people say, are you a thinker of your thought, and do your thoughts actually produce your reality? Well, sometimes the conclusions that we come up with were a lot more mysterious than we'd like to believe. After all, with a billion-dollar industry known as self-help and personal empowerment as well as improvement, many people are out there trying to seek ways that they can improve their lives. But why do so many fall short? The question is, is there something inherently wrong with them? Or are they just not following through, for instance, on all the exercises that these gurus tell them they should be doing day in and day out? Well, sometimes you might find the solution to this situation is a lot simpler than you think, but certainly is going to take a lot more work than you expect. On the program today, we're going to be talking with author of the book, It's Just a Thought. It's emotional freedom through deliberate thinking, and we're going to explore what this is. I'd like to welcome the Beyond 50 radio program today, our guest, Thomas Sterner. Thomas, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thank you, Daniel. It's great to be here. Now, sometimes solutions to something like this seem inherently easy, but beneath the surface, they're a little more challenging than that. Let's talk about, first of all, your particular journey that brought you to write one of three books on this particular subject. Well, when I was young, I was very uh, creative, which means that I had a lot of thoughts, and I was thinking all the time and moving in a lot of different directions. In fact, Many times when I work with people that are creative, they struggle with this. They struggle with quieting their mind. They struggle with feeling like they stay on task, uh, which is, you know, kind of a double-edged sword with being creative. That's what creative people do. But I was was also very undisciplined, uh, which is another aspect of not being in control of your thoughts. But I had no idea where my thoughts came from, why I felt the way that I did, and I realized by the time I was in high school that I was never going to reach my potential if I didn't understand the whole concept better and I didn't get it under control because it was clear to me that I was not following through and I was not fulfilling my goals. And that's what started me on The Practicing Mind, which was my first book. And what I realized was that everything in life is a skill. Um, it starts from the you know the time we're born, whether it's walking talking, putting a spoon of food in our mouth, buttoning a shirt, being in a relationship, running a corporation. Everything is a skill, and skill requires repetition with intention of accomplishing a specific goal. And so understanding, that's the reason why I called the book The Practicing Mind, because we what we need to learn is how to maximize our mind and use it to practice and how to fall in love with the process of practicing because that was something that I clearly struggled with. I wanted, uh, in terms of just, say, music, for example, I wanted all of the benefits of um, practicing music. I wanted the experience, the freedom of no technical barriers and expression and all that, but I hated to practice like everybody else. And I thought, well, I can't get to there where I have the skill unless unless I practice, so I need to change my experience of practicing. So that was really what started me there. As um, as I moved on, I became there was information because I wrote that book back in the early '90s. There's been so much information that has come out about how the mind, the the conscious mind, the subconscious mind interact with each other, and then the science of consciousness has come is you know is is out now and has been for several decades. And so there's a lot of information that wasn't available when I first wrote. Uh, the practicing mind. So it's just a thought is really exploring the idea that for the most part, and neuroscience says about 95% of the day, we're being thought rather than thinking. We think we're being, um, we think we're thinking, but actually all we're doing is running programs that have been installed into our subconscious and it is reacting to the stimulus outside of us. And we're just immersed in that reaction and all of the emotional content. So we have to learn to get um, to see what that feels like to get outside of that and to be the observer of what is happening before we can actually take action and um, and change it. And you know, and I should say this that I think what has really changed now is that I compare it to flight because I'm also a pilot, and I would say that you know if you go back thousands of years. 
we've always wanted to fly. People wanted to fly. They tried and tried. And these were smart people, educated people, um, all kinds of people. And the goal was to fly, but they all failed. And, and many of them died. And the reason wasn't because they couldn't fly, that the concept of us actually flying was was not um, achievable. It was that they didn't understand what we now know as the Bernoulli principle, which it doesn't matter if you know what that is. But once we understood how lift is actually created, uh, all of a sudden, you know, the Wright brothers came along and they, they had their flight. There were some other people at the same time. And within several decades, we had fighter aircraft that were flying between four and five hundred miles an hour at thirty thousand feet, and also, and then we just were on, you know, we went into space, and so everything happened from us understanding the simple mechanics of what, um, how a how flight or how lift is actually created, and the reason I think that that's important is that's where we are with understanding where our thoughts come from and how our thinking creates behaviors in us. We now have that information, and and so it's when you know in the preface there you talked about how uh, it can be um, challenging, and we can try, and there's all these gurus saying this and that, and we try these things and they fail. Well, that really has come to me because it's come from the fact that we didn't have a really thorough understanding of exactly what we're trying to accomplish, and now that we do, it makes all the difference in the world in terms of success. You know, I agree with you too. And uh, uh, you, as uh, you were talking earlier about practice, uh, I was thinking the same thing. For instance, I remember when I was in the sixth grade, I decided to start playing basketball for the basketball team. And one of the things I could not stand doing was running uh, line sprints or suicides or whatever they call them. Everybody's got a different term. You run up and you touch a line, you run back. And, you know, in the first half of the court, you had to run backwards. <laughs> and then once you got <laughs> past that to the third line, then you could turn around, you could face it. But as soon as you got to the half court line, you had to turn around and run backwards. And that's the process. And you got 20 of them. And at first, uh, for me, the challenge was I wanted to be the first one finished. But the thing is, is that was something I really didn't like to do. And uh, then as we evolved and I started playing in seventh and eighth grade, the same thing, the coaches kept having us do these things. But the funny thing was, is we were winning games and you don't put two and two together until after the fact Then I go into my freshman year of high school and the coach, as we were actually participating to see who would make the team, which was different because before you just simply, if you wanted to play, you were on the team depending on if you wanted to get in the game was how much you practiced and how good you were. But he made the comment in my freshman uh, year, the coach was that more better players came from the school that I came from. So I felt kind of liberated by the fact that, boy, I stand a really good chance of making the team, which I did, but I could never put my finger on why he would say that I'll, of all these schools that came to this high school that our school tended to produce better basketball players and it would take me a long time to finally figure out, oh, this is why we do line sprints is because you're trying to get up and down the court. So your conditioning matters. And you don't put that kind of thing together at the time. That's why we were also beating teams because our energy and conditioning was at a level that allowed us just to last longer in the game than these other teams could. And so you're so right about practice. And so many times, many of us just don't want to put in the time. We just want to get to the end result. Then we get frustrated and then we quit. And in fact, just like you said, it's a matter of falling in love with the process. And I love that you use the term practicing mind. So why don't we go ahead and start with what that really is? What is a practicing mind, for instance? Well, a practicing mind is it's the mindset. I mean, people ask me, um, is the practicing mind mindfulness? And my response is, well, mindfulness is in the practicing mind, but the practicing mind is learning to fall in the love, or fall in love with the process of becoming mindful. <laughs> and they're, they're, you know, so you have to be mindful in that process. But um, mindfulness to me is separate. Um, mindfulness is a skill, so it's a skill that you can practice. So you have to learn to. Um, there's a couple perspective. You know, it's it's it really is just a perspective change. And I have found this, and I've also found it through decades of working with people, is that 
you know, we spend about 98% of our time achieving our goals and only about 2% actually in the moment of having it or achieving it. So it just makes sense to fall in love with the process of achieving because that's where we live. And we also have this falsehood that is marketed to us all the time, which is we are incomplete. You're incomplete where you are now, and you have this feeling inside of you that is making you feel incomplete. And in order to make that feeling go away, you need to reach this particular moment, whether it's when you buy this car, you make another $10,000 a year, you meet this person, all these different things, and they're all outside of you. And you can't get rid of that feeling of incompleteness until you get whatever that is. But we can all go back through our lives, and we have had that feeling since the time we were children. And you know, there's always something, whether it's a new bike, the new cell phone, whatever it is. And we get it, and what happens? We just replace that with something else. So what is that feeling of completeness? You know, I, I say that that feeling, it, we're meant to have that feeling. It's part of our DNA the, because what that feeling does is it tells us that there's always more for us to achieve. There's always more we can be. We can always grow. We can expand. We're expanding beings. We can be um, all these different things, and we're not a stagnant status a static um, consciousness, and the and that's the reason why we have achieved all the things we've achieved. The, the Sistine Chapel, you know, brass instruments. I mean, we could be still sitting in a cave around a, a, a bunch of stones with no fire. I mean, like you know, we're, we were cold, and we said, "Hey, there's a better way. There's a better way for this. We need to figure this out." So our our mind is and our being is designed from the ground up to feel incomplete. But we misinterpret that as a bad thing, but actually it's just a reminder that there is no end to what we can become. And so that's part of when you begin to see see things like that, just that change in perspective, like I'm supposed to have this feeling, this feeling is normal, and it's actually a blessing, it's not a bad thing. If we didn't have that, everybody would just sit around and go, ah, that's it, you know, there's there's nothing to motivate us or anything, but this is... I think one of the simple things in understanding the practicing mind is the practicing mind finds joy in the sense that we are endless. You know, I had this in in the practicing mind. There was a, uh, a story I told about you know when I was playing piano growing up. I remember I was about 19 years old, and I was trying to play something I couldn't play, and I was so I was up against my threshold and. Uh, so, you know, you're always up against your threshold in wherever you are in your skill development. You know, skill, you start with zero skill, and then you move on this linear line of mastery. And you're always up against your limit. Whatever that threshold is, is where you are. Like when you start playing the piano, five years later, you don't go back to, and play the song you learn on the very first day of your lessons. Like you're way past that. So, you're, but you're feeling... You know, at that on that very first day, it feels this is really hard. Um, well, that's because you're up against your threshold. But five years later, you're playing something much more difficult. But how do you feel inside? You feel this is really hard. Why? Because you're up against your threshold. So we need to. I, I feel like it's really important to accept the fact that this is um, to. I say interpretation creates your experience, and that is going to determine how you perform. So if your interpretation of practice is this is wonderful. I'm so glad that I can. Uh, there's no limit to how good I can get. And going um, and this was something that really hit me in the head with uh, the story I started to t- say about when I was 19 and I was trying to play this uh, musical line and I couldn't do it. So what I um, did was I thought I'm just not getting any better. Well, I was completely. I was ignoring the wake behind the boat. I wasn't looking at as far all the stuff that I'd accomplished up to that point. So I wrote down a list of. Everything that I thought would make me would be my definition of a really good musician. I wrote them into this notebook that I carried with me with all my music. And I figured, looking at that, I thought, well, I'll set a goal of being able to accomplish this in five years. So two years later, I was in college, and I was in a music room on a Saturday night, and I was trying to play something that I couldn't play. And I got really frustrated and disgusted, and I said, that's it, I'm quitting for the night. And I started putting everything away, and that note fell out of my music um, uh, notebook that I carried with me. And I opened it up, and I read it, and when I read it, I saw that everything on that list that I thought was going to take me five years, I had already passed. And what hit me when I saw that was, first I felt like totally deflated because I thought, 
well, I still feel like I'm a lousy musician. So I'm. this means I'm never going to get to the point where I feel like I'm a good musician. But then almost simultaneously, I thought, no, what this is telling me is I'm never going to get to a point where I stop growing as a musician. And that's what I want. I don't want to get to a point where there's nowhere else to go. And working as a concert technician for 30 years and working with the highest level musicians in the world, um, I found that all of them, that's how they approached their art. Everything was, they never looked at like, um, well, this is as good as I can get, or I'm not going to feel good until I get to that point. They were just, I'm here practicing, and that's where I want to be. And, and so they were always in this state of kind of bliss and contentment with where they were in the process. So they were in love with the process of practicing and becoming a musician. Um, and they accepted the fact that this is an endless process. You know, there's no uh, doubt about that. You know, it's about growth, as you said. And a lot of times we kind of stifle our own, we get in our own way. And one of the uh, things that you mentioned there is the idea that, well, there's a limit. I'll never get to that point. So what do you think sometimes is involved with that thinking? And that's for people out there who say, well, I'd like to be a good pianist or I'd like to be a great golfer. I'd like to, you know, just be in the game and just do the best that I could do. But in the beginning, and I had this sort of trouble myself when I first got into radio, the idea of not feeling that I was worthy to be there, that somehow I hadn't been through a process that in my mind allowed me to deserve the feeling of being where I was, <laughs> you know, because I felt like it happened so fast. Like all of a sudden here I'm sitting in front of people, I'm interviewing them that you would see on television, mainstream and all that. And for some reason I thought this was some sort of process. Like you have to go to college or do all these things, but here I was right there doing my thing. But yet I still had this feeling like I don't deserve to be there in your experience. Where do you think that comes from? Well, that's actually a pretty easy one, and it's a great segue into the the conscious mind, subconscious mind relationship. And so I would say, first of all, that is a behavior, um, a behavioral habit of thinking. And um, this is where, you know, the, the subconscious, the, the language of the sub, subconscious mind is feeling. It looks at feelings. So it looks at circumstances. It's watching all the time. It's a very elegant recording system, and that's all it is. It doesn't think. It doesn't analyze. It doesn't have a sense of humor. It basically watches and records, and it's very highly detailed in its recording. So what it does is it watches your reactions to situations, and those reactions, how, it, how, does, it, how does it see them? It sees them through how the, re, the situation makes you feel. So... When a certain situation makes you feel a certain way, it, it, it looks at that and it notices it. And when that happens you know, a few times, then it says, okay, this is, this is how this person wants to – this is how my master wants to feel whenever this circumstance arises or something that is very similar to it. And so it stores that as a file. And then what ends up happening is that when a situation comes up that falls in line with, um, with that – uh, that circumstance, then it it just goes, oh, go get file number 302-A, and it plays it. And that's being, that's when I say, you know, are you thinking or are you being thought? Well, that's when you're being thought. And this is where the neuroscience says we spend 95% of our day. Stuff is happening out in front of us. It's in front of our eyes, in front of our ears. And what is happening is our subconscious is rapidly going and getting what we told it how we told it we want to feel when this circumstance happens. And what we have to accept and understand is that it's always working and you are always programming it. Just because you don't know it doesn't mean it's not happening. And just because you may not be in control of it doesn't mean it's not happening. And, and also the subconscious mind doesn't it doesn't care how the feeling feels to you. Like it just, this is the feeling you said because it accepts it as truth. When you give it this feeling, it accepts it as the truth. So it plays it back and it doesn't know. It's like, you know, in golf, you have a six foot putt. So the ball is six feet from the hole. The ball doesn't know 
the, all the ball knows is it's got to roll six feet before it drops in the hole. It doesn't know that the putter is nervous or can't wait to make the putt or thinks this is amazing, this is a no-brainer, this is so easy. It doesn't know any of that. All it knows is I have to go this far and get in the hole. And it's the same thing with the subconscious. The subconscious doesn't know that when it gives you this feeling, it's you're going to be uncomfortable, you're going to be sad, you're going to be anxious, you're going to be disappointed. It doesn't know any of that. It just gives you the feeling because that's what you told it to give it. Uh, give you when you're in that situation. So once you understand that, then that's the key to the prison door because that's when you start to have the opportunity, the privilege of choice. Now, that doesn't mean that it's, it's easy. It's a, it's a practice. It's a skill. So you um, first you have to, and how do you be, how do you master any skill? Well, the first thing you have to understand are what are the mechanics um, of the skill. And once you understand what the mechanics of the skill are, then you can begin to practice the mechanics. And if you can fall in love with the process of practicing them and let go, like not be attached to the moment, because when you attach to the goal, you immediately become at war with the process. Because what you're saying is, I can't be happy until I have the goal and I have to go through all of this rigmarole to get to that moment when I have the goal. I just want to be good at this. Well, Actually, that doesn't work, and you can watch it in something like video games with kids. If the game's too easy, they don't want to play it. They always want something that is just at their threshold where sometimes they can win, sometimes they get beat. And I've you know, worked with college kids and high school kids, and I've asked them, you know, what do you do when you master a level in a, in a video game? The guy go, I go to the next level. I said, what if there isn't one? They said, I quit playing the game and go get another one. And that, so we have to understand that this is what motivates us. This is why something feels good when we accomplish it. If, if it's too easy, it's boring. So, you know, you could stand by an Olympic-sized pool that's empty, and I can hand you a tennis ball, and I could say, I want you to throw the ball in the pool. Well, big deal. Like, you know, that's boring. But if I stick a, 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 a bathroom waste basket that's, you know, like maybe a foot and a half high by 10 inches round in the middle of the pool, and I say, I'll give you 100 bucks if you can drop that ball in that, that um, waste basket from here, all of a sudden, everything changes. Now we become interested. Now we become motivated. Now it becomes exciting, all these things. And so I think that, you know, this is one of the things that we have to realize is that learning to program your mind, to be the program, to be the thinker of the thought. That's why the, the book is subtitled Emotional Freedom Through Deliberate Thinking. We do not live our lives emotionally free because we do not think deliberately. And what we do is we just we are thought by our subconscious by the programs that we put in. Now, an example I've given many, many times in an interview like this is I had an executive one time who we were having this conversation and he said, I, I don't agree with that. I I don't agree with that modality. I think that I am consciously thinking my thoughts all the time. And when he said that, I responded to him. I said, did I tell you to talk? You need to sit there and just shut your mouth until I tell you to talk. And of course, he became insulted and defensive. And I said, now ask yourself, did you decide to feel what you're feeling inside right now? I said, I don't think so. I said, I think what happened was that you have, in fact, I know what happened is you have a stored program in your subconscious that says when someone speaks to me in that manner, in that tone, um, with those inflections, then I'm going to feel angry and insulted and defensive and all these things. And so the subconscious just went and got that file and played it. And he said, thank you for the awakening. He said, you're right. He said, I had no control over that. It all happened so quickly, and I just reacted. And I said, yes. And there's a difference between a reaction and a response. A reaction is what you just experienced. A response, which comes from deliberate thinking, is when you decide, you create the thought, you create what the reaction is or what the response is going to be. A response has will and decision-making in it. A reaction does not. So this is where the rubber meets the road with this, is understanding that you, everyone has this ability to, to become the creative designer of how they're going to uh, react to situations, how they're going to process things. And it does take some time and some work, but we know it's a fact. It's not woo-woo, hocus-pocus stuff. It's a fact. We know this now. We know that we have these controls. And so you either get on the train or you get left at the station. Like, But you're going to see now, you know, over the next 10 to 15 years that this is going to be everywhere. It's already in sports. 
at the highest levels. It's going to be in corporate America. It's going to be everywhere. Now, I like that story you told. I remember reading that, and I, it reminded me of a time when, for instance, we were doing a trade show event promoting our show, and all of a sudden, at once, I heard my wife behind me, and she was in this sort of very energetic discussion about something as I was talking with somebody else. So when we finished, uh, as I finished talking with the person, I turned around, and my wife says, uh, you know, this guy here seems to believe that you can't reverse diabetes. Now, what was funny about that moment is you see his body tense up like he was ready for war. He was ready and he was armed. He had, you know, all of it. And I just simply looked and I said, well, that's okay. <laughs> and then all of a sudden his <laughs> energy just came like, wait a minute. I thought I was going to have a battle with this. That's like, right. hey, you're entitled to believe what you want to believe. But why that was an important story that you just shared as well as what I'm sharing here is the idea of practicing mind is how do you know, for instance, when you're in that realm and you said it simply, it's how you're reacting to whatever the outside stimulus is in a given situation. And as soon as you can come into practice, that practicing mind, as you said, to realize in this moment, in this discussion, in this uh, experience or situation that I'm in, do I feel that I'm about to react? That takes you out of the moment, out of Zen, if you will. And you gave a great example in your book about, you know, as you mentioned earlier, that you're a piano technician uh, and that you play piano, that that's how the Japanese built better pianos than American. I'd like you to share that story because I think that's so important, the contrast between what one culture feels or thinks about the world of work versus how we in America do. And that really yeah, that is was a ba- pretty big story. Well, I was, it was back, um, th- this was back in the uh, late 70s, 1980s, and the Japanese had, like they had, just like they had with the cars, you know, the, the Japanese cars were outselling the American cars. They were a much higher, higher quality. The same thing was happening with the Japanese piano. When the Japanese pianos started to show up in, in the United States, the United States pianos were the, the lack of quality in the American pianos began to really show. <laughs> Americans didn't have something to to compare it to before, but I remember in the retail stores, some they would have a Japanese piano, whether it was a Yamaha, Kawai, or you know whatever, and they would open that up, and then they would open up an American piano like a Kimball or a Waltz or next to it, and even some of that knew nothing about pianos could see the difference in the quality. So, and yes, the price point was a little bit more, but the people were willing to pay for that. So everybody was struggling to get a a Japanese brand uh, in the retailers were trying to get on uh, one on their floor because they just simply couldn't compete if they didn't have one. So one of the uh, the retailers that I did a lot of work for told me that he had gotten the contract to sell the Kawai uh, uh, pianos and he took a trip to Japan to tour the factory. So he said he's gone down the factory line, and they had this their their mindset was just so different. For example, they had all of their vertical pianos, you know, so the consoles and the uprights and the studio uprights, something you would see in institutions. Uh, and then they had their grand pianos, and the grand pianos started about five foot two, and then they went up to six foot, and eventually to six foot eight. And then the highest, the biggest pianos they made was their semi concert and their concert grands, and that that was. The semi-concerts was seven foot four, and the concertgram was nine foot, which was standard. Well, what he said was, in order to work in the factory that makes the seven foot four and the nine foot, you had to have 25 years of experience in the other factory, which is just a kind of an amazing. But they really valued this concept of the old craftsman. But going down the assembly line, he came to where the cast iron plates were made and where they came out of the molds, and they're, they. They're cast in a sand mold, and so when they come out of the mold, uh, and they're, uh, in case somebody doesn't know, that's when you open up a grand piano. That's the big gold harp-looking thing that you see there. And when they come out of the mold, they're really very rough-looking, and they have to be sanded and filed and polished and filled uh, just like a car body type thing, and it's very tedious work, and there was a guy doing that. And so my friend uh, asked him, uh, how many of those do you have to get done in a day? And he said, as many as I can make perfect. And he said, well, 
uh, don't you have like a manager? And he said, what's a manager? And he said, it's somebody who makes sure you do your job. He said, why would I need someone to make sure I do my job? This is my job. This is what I do. And he said, do you not have pressure? He said, suppose it takes you two days. He, he exaggerated. Suppose it takes you two days to do one plate. He goes, that's fine. He said, all they ask is that I make it perfect. And um, now that is a completely different paradigm than what we uh, especially at that time. And that's the reason why they put the Americans, uh, the pianos all but out of business. Uh, there, um, by the 1990, there was almost no American pianos. You know, at, at the turn of the last century, there were over 300 piano manufacturers in this country. And by the 1980s and 1990, there was maybe a half a dozen. So, and even those, uh, the Steinways and stuff, you know, they went through their period where they were so awful. Uh, they were bought out by CBS, and it was they were basically used as a commodity because they had this name that they had built over, you know, the last hundred years. And so they were basically like, get them done as quick as you can because we can't make any money off of them until they're finished and on the floor. And so there was that, you know. Now they did. I will say, Steinway, out of fairness, Steinway, they did turn that around. But they went through a period in the '70s and '80s where their pianos were awful, and the. Um, I mean, even the casting, the letters in the casting on the plate, you couldn't read them. They were all, uh, you know, blurred and uh, just because everything was just done so haphazardly. So anyway, yes, that was the story. And so my point in the book was that, see, the, that guy, he was totally in the present moment in the process of making the plate perfect. And that was being supported by the people over him. And there was no time limit. It was just this is what the product. We, this is how we want the product to work. Absorb yourself in the moment and practice your your craft and give us a perfect plate. You know, and that's what made that an amazing story because it also reminded me of the documentary uh, Jiro Loves Sushi. <laughs> okay, I don't know if you're familiar with that one or not, but there's a small little sushi place in Japan that's basically down in a subway station somewhere and it's considered arguably to be a one of the most expensive if not the most expensive restaurant in the world to eat at you need at least one year minimum in advance to reserve a place in this small little restaurant so that this master sushi person could actually make sushi for you to order named Jiro and in here, he has a couple of people that work with him, and they were saying just to get to a point that you can actually make sushi, you've got to spend at least a minimum of 20 years as an apprentice. And then you look yeah. into the process that he goes about, like, he has only one person that grows and supplies his rice. I mean, it's real level mastery that this guy does. And when you think about that and somebody says, well, what if I want to make sushi or I want to play the piano? Here's the interesting point that I wanted to make about that, especially in America, is that we're conditioned to have things that are quick, things that are easy. <laughs> you know, like you should just say, I want this and here it is. So you can see the frustration people that would have, especially in the West, the idea that we put aside practice, <laughs> that we put aside all that just to get to the end goal. But then again, if you could, how satisfying would that be? You would never get the feeling of what your true potential is. That's what I always loved about the Japanese culture. The idea of the Zen mind is that you spend each waking day working toward mastery, which means practice, practice, practice. But anybody who's ever done anything worth doing realizes not only is that a necessary step, but you get up and you look forward to it. And I remember my day in junior high school, Saturday Night Fever came out. I had to go see that. And I looked at John Travolta doing his thing, and I said, I want to do that. And while a lot of my friends were out playing football in the front yard, I was throwing the records on, and I was doing my thing three, four hours a day. But like you said earlier, it's something you've got to love to do. And that makes a big difference because it helps you get over the frustrations you have about not hitting that one step or that one move. And so your conditioning, as you said, your mind, you're reconditioning that whole thing there to actually move through and move forward. Pretty soon, everybody's like, I want to dance like you do. Well, if you do, then you're going to put in the time. 
but nobody really wants to do that. They just want the end result. And so it's an amazing thing, as you said, when you take a look at this whole thing, just like self-help, if you really want to achieve these goals, first of all, you have to find out what are the dynamics to whatever that is. You want to be a great trader, for instance, like my wife, for instance, she does day trading, uh, works in Forex, stuff like that. Has she made money? Uh, she's made a little, but not a bunch like they promise on YouTube. There's always these people that are, you know, for instance, YouTube is, I think, one of those technologies that are great on the one hand, but on the other hand, they kind of defeat what we're talking about because you'll see people, how to turn 50 into $200,000 in just one month. Here's how I did it. Then you realize, well, they're selling a bunch of courses they're not really doing the trading i've watched her spend literally the last going on three years now just in study alone and she's been committed there'll be nights that she'll pull out the flashlight she's reading a trading book while i'm asleep she's putting in the time over time that's going to pay but then you don't look at the end result about all this big money you're going to make it's just surely understanding that the knowledge she has gained to this point she could look at a chart for anything. It could be stocks, bonds, Forex, you name it. But she understands how to read charts. It doesn't matter what it is. Understands finance. Doesn't matter what it is. And so you get these interesting skills that in your beginning journey, you didn't expect. So would it be fair to say in the process of practicing mind that don't look at this as a linear journey, but look at it as something that you're willing to allow to unfold and pretty much kind of saying yes to what comes in front of you because whatever that is, is sort of the universe saying, okay, but you're going to need this now. And you'll yeah, unfold you in ways that you can imagine. You look back at that wake like you're in the boat and you're driving forward. You're now in control of your thoughts. And you look back at the wake and you say to yourself, wow, did I do all that? That's a pretty astonishing way to look at life. Well, it is. And I think that, you know, there was there was a couple of things that my jazz piano teacher told me. He was a brilliant guy. It still is. Um, and one of the things was, you know, that in order to, he said, in order to be free in the art, you have to first become a slave to the process. So what does that mean? It, practice dissolves technical barriers. That's what it does. You know, um, freedom of expression comes from dissolving technical barriers. And if you look at the way people go through their, you know, many people go through their lives, they are not in control of what their mind does. They're not even aware of what their mind does. They're just in their thoughts. And that isn't freedom. You know, freedom comes from dissolving the technical barriers of being outside of the process of of your ego and your mind thinking and being the basically the master of that instead of the puppet. And, uh, you know, an example of that is, you know, one time I was working with some high school kids and I told them, you, what we're going to do is I'm going to put a timer on for two minutes and I want you to just close your eyes and stop thinking. Now I didn't. I knew that that was not possible for them to do, but they they didn't know it, and they just assumed that they could do it. So the two minutes went by, and when the timer went off, you know, this is in an auditorium. You know, everybody wakes up, and they're they're just going on and on about how they couldn't stop their mind from thinking. And I it was, I was in the cafe, you know, saw myself in the cafeteria, or I was working, uh, having a conversation with someone, and just all these different thoughts that kept playing out in their mind. And I said, well, let me ask you this: if you are telling your mind the real you is willing, using your will um, and telling your mind to stop thinking and your mind is saying, no, I'm going to think anyway. Uh, who's really in control during the day? Because it's not you. And this is why, to me, to realize that um, you can, you know, you can uh, say, well, I'm not going to participate in this. I did a, a, a thing for um, all the college golf instructors in Las Vegas one time and I said, look, your players can use this. It, it's really mental technology. That's what it is. You can use this technology or you can get beat by the people that are using it. I mean, that's just a fact. Like, like it's here. We know it. And you have the, the choice of either participating in it and diving into it and learning to use it. Um, or, you know, you can just say, no, I'm not going to do that. And I remember I asked this guy, he was an older guy, if he, um, he was started talking about golf, and I asked him if he ever played. He said, yeah, it, it takes too much patience. I don't play it. And I thought, so that's your solution. <laughs> like, you know, like, well, it was too hard, so I'm not going to do it. Like, um, like 
patience is a virtue that pretty much everyone has. All it did was show him that he doesn't have any. It's like not really a reason to not play it. But I think that this is, you know, one of the the key things that we're talking about here is to understand that you don't you're not really free unless you are the gatekeeper of your thoughts. That's who you want to be. You want to decide which thought I'm going to let this thought I'm going to let through, this thought I'm not. This thought is going to take me someplace that's going to make me feel lousy, and I don't want to go there. So I'm going to say, no, you can't get through. That's a concept. You know, I, re- I remember I had a conversation with a guy that I was warned was uh, could be very arrogant. And so he came up to me in an event, and uh, sort of like the, 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 the situation you described earlier with your wife, and he said, uh, you know, I've I've heard about you. I don't agree with your your um your way of thinking. And I said, oh, I said, well, that just like you, I said, well, that's fine. Like uh, I said, I'm curious why. He said, because there's stuff that happens and you can't control your thinking. And I said, I said, you know, you make the mistake of thinking because you can't do something that there's no one in the world that can do it. And I said, the fact is, you're wrong. There are lots of people that can control their thoughts. I said, uh, I have taught people to do it. I said, I didn't used to be able to, but I'm pretty good at it now. I won't say I can do it all the time, but most of the time I can. And the times where I start to fail, I generally catch myself and get back into in control. I said, but just because you can't do it um, or you don't know about it, the truth is the truth. Whether you know about it, whether you agree with it, it's still the truth. So... Um, I think it's really important for people to understand, especially in this day and age where we are, our thinking is so manipulated by the media because when I was growing up, you know, there were three channels on the television you could watch and they weren't on 24 hours a day, you know? And if so, if you weren't watching, you know, there wasn't, the media didn't have a, a connection to us all the time. But now with the televisions, they're everywhere. You go to a convenience store to buy a sandwich, and there's televisions you know, going. I mean, everywhere you go, and your phone has televisions and movies and commercials. Everything, we're constantly being bombarded. So our thinking is being manipulated all the time, and it feels normal uh, because we get so much of it. And we need to wake up and get outside of that and realize, am I thinking or is somebody doing the thinking for me? Mm-hmm. You know, that's an interesting point. And I remember a story you were sharing in the book about that very thing about technology. And I agree with a lot of it because I've seen even a change in just the last five years in the culture of work where people now become easily offended by things that make them feel uncomfortable. And I think a good part of that has to do with social media and the false sense of acceptance that it gives people that I have an opinion, I'm going to search out people who share that opinion. Anything outside of that is wrong. So they don't really put themselves in the world to feel what it feels like to be hurt, to feel what it feels like to struggle, to actually get in there with an opinion, have somebody beat it down and say, well, okay, maybe I need to learn in this moment there's a different perspective that I haven't seen yet. How could I come to understand this? And it's gotten to a point that, uh, and I've heard a lot of stories about this too, that people are actually, who had been in the workforce for decades, are all of a sudden finding themselves, uh, for lack of a better word, becoming victims of this technology breakdown in society that causes them to lose jobs. I mean, we take a look at what's called the woke culture now. Hey, you don't agree with me? Well, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to affect your livelihood. You know, things like that. And as you were mentioning earlier about television, when we were growing up, you're right, three or four channels. I remember waking up just so I could see the Indian at six o'clock in the morning, which means there was no TV being broadcast. I couldn't wait until television started. I was up before the television was because I wanted to see the Indian. And now we've got it in our hands. And I watch people with these phones in their hands scrolling through stuff, instant gratification. It's like we've created now a couple of generations of, hey, lack of a better word, heroin addicts. Yeah. Well, they're definitely addicted to their phones. Yeah. um, And you think, where is the mental conditioning, the practicing mind? It's like it's becoming eroded. And, and I do have great concern with that, but I also have hope as well, because it's not everybody. And I like, uh, there was a particular chapter that you uh, talked about struggling and, uh, you know, and how 
that is actually helping you in a particular way. So let's talk about that, for instance, because I kind of want to give people in the last 15 minutes some kind of tools they can consider using. I know the first one we talked about is how do you react both mentally as well as emotionally to a situation that's unfamiliar, whether you're getting ready to start learning uh, a skill or, you know, you want to play in a game or you're in a social environment, for instance, public speaking. You know, again, like you said, these are learned skills. You can learn to do these things. How well you do them is how much time, good time, in other words, good practice, you're willing to put in to get to that level. But struggle is an important part because it tells you there's the next level to go to. That should excite you. There's one more level you need to get to. Once you get there, oh, I've got a str- I thought I was there. No, you got one more level. And that's life showing you how deep and how masterful do you want to become at this. And that's where the love really comes in for that. You're right. And I... um Struggle is an interesting. We have we have meanings. I guess I should say feelings attached to words. If I say the word difficult, you know, people. Well, I don't want. To, I don't want something that's difficult. If I say struggle, when you feel like you're struggling, um, I don't want to have to struggle. Well, words are. You know, linguistics are very poor at um, transmitting or communicating meaning. Uh, so. What I say is that, look, when you feel like something, you're struggling at something, well, all that's telling you is you're up at your skill level, the threshold of your skill. It's just data. The feeling is just data. The feeling doesn't know it, you're, it's uncomfortable. It's just information. The information is telling you you haven't mastered this yet. You know, we don't, we don't think about stuff that we're good at because we're good at it. It just, you know, it just kind of flows past us. We only notice the stuff we're not good at. And that information has to be communicated to us in some manner. And it's communicated through this feeling that we call struggle. But that's a word we've attached to it. It's not, it's just data. And um, and so then we attach and we say, oh, this is struggle. I don't like struggle. Well, it's just what really you should, as you just said, you should rejoice in it. Because what that's telling you is, you're you're functioning right now at the highest level you can function at. That's and you're pushing that threshold forward. That's the reason you're feeling this feeling. It doesn't know that that feeling is making you upset. It just knows this is this is how I'm communicating to you that you're up against your threshold, which is where you want to be. That's why I said you know when you're when you learn music, um, you know on the first day of a music lesson, you don't know anything. You don't know where the notes are on the on the manuscript. You don't know what a quarter note is or a eighth note or a whole note. You don't know where they are on the keyboard if you're learning to play the piano. You don't know any of that. That's your threshold. That's where you are. So you're trying to figure that out, and it's difficult and it's a struggle. But then you can go past to where you're in college and you're playing pretty difficult music. And what is it? What is the feeling that you experience then? It's the same thing you felt on the very first day when you were, say, seven years old. It's the same feeling. The feeling is, I can't do this. This is, this is difficult. Well, that's because you're up against your threshold. So that feeling is only information. It's just letting you know. It's like a kind of like a, a barometer, you know, that's just letting you know this is where you're this is where you're sitting in terms of your skill development. If you're doing it and it's really easy, then you're not pushing your skill. You're just playing stuff you already you're already able to do. And this is true in no matter what the circumstances are. If you uh, get nervous in interviews, if you get um, you know, you get bossed around if you don't stand up for yourself. If you, you know, you get worried about certain things. If you're like a worry ward, I used to be a worry ward when I was young. Like all of those, you know, not being a worry ward is a skill. You know, it. it um, and so when you begin to look at things like that, and you can detach from this feeling of I should be the master of everything that I I turn my attention towards. You know, because that just isn't life. And you can rejoice in the fact that you can master anything. But there is a process to it. The first thing to do is understand the mechanics of mastering it, and then you start to repeat them. And if you can stay in the present moment and let go of this idea of when I master this, then I'm going to be happy because you've mastered an awful <laughs> lot of things in your life. And you're still, mm-hmm. you still have that feeling of incomplete. You know, you've mastered, you know, there's, I mean, I have, um, 
you know, I have a grandson and I look at, you know, like when he's trying to, when he was trying to learn how to walk, you know, he's three now, you know, and like, and you look at that, man, that's a skill and it's not an easy one, you know, um, and, you know, and, but of course we don't remember those types of things. And, you know, when he was learning to feed himself, you know, it's a skill, but it was very frustrating because the food wouldn't stay on the spoon and you know, all that stuff. I mean, we have mastered so many skills in our life. And, but when we master them, they become easy, and then we don't think about them anymore. So we only notice the things that push back. And that's why I go back to the, look, your interpretation of the situation, of the process that you're in, is going to, it's going to create your experience of it. So you just mentioned you know, getting up in front of people and talking. Well, there's a perfect example. If I tell two different people, tomorrow you've got to get up in front of 1,000 people and talk. There's two different interpretations there. One person says, that's my, you know, that's my worst nightmare. Like, I can't stand it. I, I'm going to freeze. I'm going to be all nervous. And the other person says, great. I can't wait. I got a lot to say. I love it. You know, talking in front of the people is just talking in front of the people. It's like I said, the ball, the golf ball has to roll six feet to go in the hole. It doesn't know how the person that is handing the put or has his hands on the putter, it doesn't know how that what that person is experiencing. It only knows the process of rolling across the green and falling in. So that process is just the process. The person that is on the end of the putter is the one who interprets how that feels. And it, uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's a situation where it's to win a tournament, not like it doesn't matter on a putting green. But my point is, it's the same thing. We have the opportunity. So I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about, um, okay, so how do you get this awareness? Well, that's what we're talking about. You can't control your thoughts if you're not aware of what thoughts your mind is producing if you're just in your thoughts. So it's very important that people have uh, in fact, it's without it, you can't do any of this. You have to have some sort of a very simple, what I'll, uh, I don't particularly like the word meditation, but I, I call it thought awareness because meditation has many connotations to it. You know, you, could be, you can be doing that for a religious experience or whatever. And uh, what we're talking about here is a process where you become more anchored in the observer of what the mind is doing right. instead of in the mind. And um, so how do you do that? Well, a very simple process is to sit in a chair and um, close your eyes. And you sh- it should be something like a dining room chair that has usually like they have a tall back to them. So your, your back is supported. So you stay erect. And then you just, you know, feet flat on the floor, your hands can be in your laps and, and you sit. And I, I ask everybody I work with, like 10 minutes a day, that's all I'm asking for. If you can't do 10 minutes a day, that's just a confirmation of how undisciplined you are. <laughs> so like, mm-hmm. um, you know, for 10 minutes a day, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to take a few cleansing breaths, slow, uh, deep cleansing breaths. And then I want you to just watch your body breathe. Just watch it breathe. I, the temptation will be, to start to instruct it because now you're paying attention to it. So usually it happens without your, your consciousness uh, you know, being on it. So when as soon as you start to focus your attention on it, then you feel like you should, I should deep, maybe I should breathe slower, maybe I should breathe deeper, maybe just let go of that and your body will fall into a rhythm. And then as it does that, this is what's going to happen. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you've been meditating for 70 years. This is what's going to happen. The mind is a problem-solving machine. And the, if you don't give it a problem to solve, it gets bored very quickly and it will go looking for one. And so yeah. what it does is after after 30 seconds, if it takes that long, it says, this is boring. You don't need me here to do this. I'm going to go think about that report that get, has to be done, or I'm going to think about what I need at the grocery store later today, or uh, you know whatever. It, it's going to and it's going to take off. And when it takes off and starts working on that, you will go with it because that's what you've done your whole life. You'll just go with it, and then the, all the magic happens in this brief instant when you wake up and you recognize that you're no longer paying attention to. Uh, to your breathing, you're thinking about the grocery store. And the reason that that is, that's where all the juice is, is because that's when the real you, the observer, the noticer, whatever you want to get, your true self, whatever, that's when you, you re-basically anchor yourself with you because now you have noticed what the mind is doing. You're not in the mind anymore because you've noticed that the mind is not doing what you have used your will to tell it to do. You've given, that's just the reason why we give it a single task of watching our breathing because we need a point of relativity. 
So when we say, all I want you to do is watch the breathing. And so as soon as it takes off and then you, you go with it, then you wake up. And so in that instant, what happens is you become aware um, as the observer. You become aware that your mind is not – it's, it's um, basically denying you and it's going off on its own and that you have gone with it. But now you're back in control and you're back anchored to the observer. So right there, yourself, your awareness of your thoughts has ri- risen. And then, then your willpower pulls it back. And those two things are the practice of, of this thought awareness training. And they, what they do is they create – it's a repetition. It's a practice. You repeat it over mm-hmm. and over and over again. And then what magically happens in a very short period of time um, is you start to notice that your, when your mind starts to have anxious thoughts and all, you start to notice – that you aren't the anxiousness. Your your mind is um, your subconscious has gone and gotten an anxious rea- reaction to a situation because that's what you've told it to do in the past. But now you have a choice. You have the privilege of choice. Mm-hmm. Do I want this to be my reaction to this situation? You're anchored in the observer. You're watching what the mind is doing. Now you can start recoding the subconscious and um, telling it, you know, well, this is how, this is how I want to experience this feeling. So um, I just think like this is the fundamental building block of everything that has to do with self-improvement. If you are not aware of what your mind is doing without your permission, then you are not in control and you're not free. And so and people get upset, you know, when they say, well, how long do I have to do this? And I say, well, for the rest of your life. And they're like, for the rest of my life. And I said, well, you brush your teeth every day. You know, like you don't think right. about that. You know, you just brush your teeth a couple times a day. You you um, take a shower. You know, um, there's lots of things you do every day um, for the rest of your life. You don't you don't detest them. I'm only asking you for 10 minutes to um, to gain a, um, a totally different perspective on your life and and control that you don't have right now. Right. I know it's pretty amazing. And I kept thinking about what you had said earlier uh, through the interview and before, because I remember reading where if you don't give your mind something to do or a problem to solve, it's going to find it for you. And I cracked up laughing the first, this was several years ago, about how true that really was. And I remember coming across the work of uh, Byron Katie and her book, Loving What Is. And she actually gave me a neat little program Uh, that I started using that challenged my thinking. And I realized that as I kept using it, it was one simple question. And and in her book, it's like four questions that'll change your life. But what it was is like, let's say, for instance, you're getting ready. It's Sunday night. You know, everybody who's worked a five-day-a-week, Monday through Friday job knows what Monday morning blues is. And generally, part of that Monday morning blues is the thinking about what a jerk your boss is. (laughs) And so here's the thinking process that would occur, let's say, in that situation. So it's Sunday night. I got to get up Monday morning. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting up. I'm in a bad mood. I got to go to work. And God, my boss sure is a jerk. Now, Byron Katie, the one question that I used a lot in the beginning that became a habit was, well, what evidence do you really have that that's true, that your boss is a jerk? And all of a sudden, I found that you start laughing about challenging that thought that gave you that emotional charge that really started taking you down the drain about your day. And what was funny is it became comical, like, yeah, well, what evidence do I really have that my boss was a jerk? Well, they did this, but then you start saying, well, what evidence do you have that that was wrong? And then you start really following your thinking and how quickly (laughs) your thinking can take you down that emotional rabbit hole that could totally filter your whole day in a way that you don't really want it to. And as we've been talking about here, it's all about practice, practicing mind, and it's a lifetime. It is. And you have to re- and the other thing to realize just from a health conscious uh, perspective is that every time you have a thought, your blood chemistry changes instantly. And if you ruminate a thought like somebody upset you and you think that thought, oh, you think you just keep thinking about it, thinking about it. Every time you think about it, your body, from your body's perspective, it's the trauma is happening again. And I remember one time my older daughter came home when she was in middle school and 
she was upset, and I asked her what was going on, and I think she was in the seventh grade, and she said, well, some girl made fun of her hair, and I said, well, when was that? And she said, like this morning when I went to my locker. I said, you mean like 8 o'clock this morning? And she said, yeah. I said, it's like 4.30 in the afternoon. I said, you're still thinking about that? I said, I don't think that girl's at home thinking about it. I said, but I want to tell you, every time you run that thought through your head, as far as your body's concerned, that trauma, that upsetness is happening again. Your blood chemistry changes, the hormones change, everything changes. And you're, you know, you're putting that toxicity on your system. And so um, this is, it all comes down to, are you aware of, your thoughts happen to you. For most people, they don't think their thoughts, their thoughts happen to them. And I ask people, mm-hmm. you can tell that, because if you ask yourself, uh, if I could stop this thought I'm having right now, would I do it? Most of the time it's yes. You know, like um, if they're feeling stressed or anxious or angry or whatever, and you said, look, I'm going to touch you on the head with this magic wand, and I can make that stop, that thought stop, and you'll be free from that thought. Would you like me to do that? You know, most of the time, it's yes, I, um, because they're not in control of it. That thought is happening to them, and that's what we're talking about here, Daniel, is the ability to first be aware of what your mind is producing, what thoughts it's producing, and then to have the ability to make a decision and be a deliberate thinker and say, this is not where I want to go. This thought is not going to make me happy, and it's not going to solve my problem. It's just going to repeat behavior that I've done over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, also, too, if you want to change, which a lot of us want to, because uh, the self-help industry certainly proves that with the billions of dollars that are spent from people trying to change their lives, the first question, you know, why do you want to change? What is it that you want to be different in your life? And the second thing is, you know, as you mentioned earlier about linguistics and words and how powerful those can be, the word struggle. Okay, well, I really don't want to struggle. Well, what's your interpretation of what struggle actually is? Uh, You know, and what I did, what I found was also encouraging, and this was years ago, that uh, something came across, well, if somebody is, or if there's something you want to do, whether it's golfing, piano, playing basketball, and you want to do that at a great level that you feel satisfied. That's the key. Do you want to master and be in the NBA and you're 58 years old? It's not likely, but do you want to enjoy and play, you know, on teams or play a piano to a level that you're entertaining friends? I mean, if that's enough for you, that's great too. But when you're in that struggle phase, you know, one question you can ask yourself when you're thinking, well, I can't do this is simply this. Well, if someone else could do it, well, so could I. You know, and then another thing that I found that gave me a lot of solace too about struggle is we think about all these people we laud and we hold up on a pedestal. It could be Thomas Edison, uh, it could be Westinghouse, it could be a whole slew of people. Is go and read their biographies, or if there's an autobiography, read that, and you will find these people didn't just get from point A to point B and became legendary. There was a lot of struggle <laughs> that we all go through this. It isn't just in some of us, it's in all of us. And when you realize that, it becomes very liberating and should be inspiring enough for you to take the what could be, in some cases, for some people, painful action, but at least you're taking action and you're becoming present and you're showing up. And when you show up, that's the first start towards success to whatever direction you want to go. What are your thoughts on that? I think that I think you're totally correct. And I also would finish by saying um, that, unfortunately, there's not a lot of personal growth in um, easy time sitting on the beach drinking a pina colada. You know, you're not. There's not a lot of growth going on there. All of our personal growth comes from. Yeah, all of our personal growth comes from times where we feel it's difficult that you have to use that word mm-hmm. have struggle. That's where our personalities are shaped. That's where we learn empathy. That's where we learn compassion. That's where we learn what we're actually capable of. That's when we learn how to reach down deep um, and, and push forward in a difficult situation. All of our, the things that really make us the special person where they are, they all come from circumstance, um, you know, pushing through learning skills that we don't have and, um, and, and dealing with difficult situations, you know, situations that are easy when we're on vacation, everything's fun and we're just kind of hanging out. There's not a whole lot of personal growth that's going there. I don't mean that we don't need those times, but I think to recognize that, you know, when just because something is difficult doesn't mean it's bad. Um, you know, we, we mm-hmm. some, we're taught that we're supposed to be happy all the time, and we're not. 
You know, I mean, happiness, sadness, they're just interpretations of feelings. And each one, you know, if you if you never experience sadness, then you can't be compassionate to someone else who's experiencing it. So everything has value to it. And, you know, we need to learn that and accept it. And again, fall in, fall in love with the process of of going through all those things and mastering them. You know, Thomas, uh, great conversation. Uh, I'd love to bring you back on the program again. You know, we can explore uh, further because you do have free books on on this. And we're just talking about it's just a thought. And I really love how small and simple it is. I always find people who really know their stuff, the books get smaller because they're more direct. (laughs) Great stuff. Is there a website people can find out more about your work, how to get the book, Mm -hmm. things like that? Yeah, yeah, they can go to tomsterner.com, um, just just T-O-M-S-T-E-R-N-E-R.com. Uh, they can email me at tom at tomsterner.com. The books are available pretty much, you know, everywhere, whether it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all, you know, all of the main uh, sources have them. And uh, uh, it's just a thought. I'm producing the I, – I have a – actually, I'm sitting in a recording – my recording studio right now. I'm producing the audio version. That's, that one is not out yet, but it will be at some point in the near future. Fantastic. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us here on the Beyond 50 radio program. Thank you, Daniel. I I was looking forward to it, and I wasn't disappointed. (laughs) So it was great talking to you. (laughs) We didn't struggle. (laughs) We're practicing. That's that's right. We did. (laughs) Thanks a lot, my friend. We want to thank you, the listeners out there, for joining us. You can discover more at beyond50radio.com. That is the number 50. We encourage you to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter and keep up to date with what's going on in the world of Beyond 50, as well as our upcoming shows. I'm Daniel Davis. Thank you for joining us. This is the Beyond 50 radio program. And remember, wherever you are is where you should be. Have a great day.